Tonight's episode is brought to you by Sherpa.com, SurvivalFeeling.com, and you, our listeners. I made you a sandwich. Now ski 37 days and 600 kilometers to the South Pole, and you can eat it. Well, good evening, all of you Wayward Souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell stories of adventures in the great outdoors, adventures in self-discovery, adventures in healing, and adventures in all kinds of things, as long as it's outdoor-related. That's what we're going to talk about here. The goal is to be entertaining. So far, 37 episodes in now. I'm not sure if I've done that, but... It has entertained me making it, so that's good enough. That's good enough. I want to thank all of you guys who have been leaving ratings and reviews and encourage anyone who has not to please take a minute to go and do that. It helps so much. You know, you've heard me say it pretty much every episode, and that alone, the preponderance of the times that I've said that, should tell you how important it actually is. And if you're enjoying what you're listening to, I assure you, it would be... So sincerely appreciated if you would take the time to just leave a little rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast at. Tonight is episode 38, and tonight marks the very last episode that we will ever record here in Studio 119, a.k.a. my kitchen in the apartment I live in. That's the beauty of podcasting. You buy some, like, a little bit. A little bit of foam sound dampeners, throw them back there. Maybe do something fancy like this little uh, painting thing that I had put together. And suddenly, looks like you got a studio. Like, it's Hollywood, baby. Fake it till you make it. Anyway, this will be the last episode in the studio because I will be moving next week. And the new studio will probably look a whole lot like this one because I'm not necessarily all that creative when it comes to decorating. But I might try to freshen it up a little bit. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, tonight's episode, I mentioned just a little while ago, and any of you who've been around for a while know we tell stories about things that happen out there in the great outdoors. And tonight, I have got some doozies for you guys. I got stories tonight that I am so, so, so psyched about telling you guys. Um, But I need to state that they required quite a bit of research and a lot of typing. I had to construct um, a couple of narratives here and draw heavily from some online resources. Um, So tonight I'll be doing quite a bit of reading. And any of you who have listened to any of the episodes that I've had to do um, heavy research, heavy writing, and do a lot of reading and narrating, that's not my strong point. I prefer to just speak off the cuff like we are. But when your subjects require research... And it's something that you are not fully, completely, intimately, thoroughly acquainted with. It is a recipe for disaster to try to talk out of your tail end about something that you've only got bits and pieces and none of it's really, really fully committed to memory yet. Um, So just kind of a heads up. I hope I'll be better tonight. I'm going to slow down, take it a little bit slower. And over the last several episodes, I've been much more pleased with how these episodes are coming out and my flow and my comfort level here in front of the camera and behind the mic. I've personally felt that they've improved significantly. So maybe we can keep that smooth 
um, that smooth flow going. Like we've been flowing like a bottle of Drano. Um, so hopefully we can keep up with that. Maybe these will be a little bit better than some in the past. Um, I know some of them, it's hard for me. Well, most of them, it's hard for me to go back and listen to. I do not like listening to myself. If it weren't for y'all's continued, um, positive feedback, I would probably be like, yeah, this is crap, Justin. You are crap, but I'm hearing good things, so I'm going to trust y'all's outside perspective over my internal self-critical perspective. So let's get on into it. What are we going to talk about tonight? You may remember the badass women of the Yukon Gold Rush episode or the Klondike Gold Rush episode. That was one of my favorite episodes to research, favorite episodes to record, and it's been one of you guys' favorite episodes. It is the most downloaded episode of any of the ones that I have put out to date. That one in particular, I got a nice little email from a history teacher informing me that he was going to use that episode as a um, as a teaching tool and allow his students to listen to it because they were reading a book about the Klondike Gold Rush. And that God, that y'all for real, that, that was like everything to me. Cause I love history and I love the outdoors. And that's a place where they both kind of came together and converged. And I put out an episode and it actually accomplished something in a different life. I would have been a history teacher. Okay. I might actually still don't put it past me. No, or, no, no, wait, somebody tell me that I can't. Cause if you tell me that I can't, then I'm going to go do it. I'll be a friggin' PhD before it's over with if you tell me I can't do it. Um, but anyway, that one was one of my favorites ever, and it's been one of our listeners' favorite episodes, and I've been wanting to do another one. Problem is, I've been having a little bit of trouble putting together, mm, you know, a theme. You want to keep them thematic. Badass women of the Klondike, that's simple enough. There were several in one event in history, and I could talk about all of them. Um, finding enough content for an episode that's all within the same thematic is a little harder. So it's just been sitting around hanging out on the back burner for the last, you know, several months. But I came across a story in my Facebook feed in one of my, one of the groups I'm in, actually Ridiculous Historians, which is a great group and a great podcast done by uh, Ben and Noel of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know fame and the How Stuff Works family. And Ridiculous Historians is or Ridiculous History is a great podcast, and they just talk about ridiculous things in history. But the Ridiculous Historians is a pod or a Facebook group for the podcast for all the listeners, and you get lots of great info shared in there. And I saw one of the stories I'm going to tell tonight um, that I had to work heavily to construct a narrative out of um, based off all the information I could find online. But it was so inspiring and also just absolutely incredibly awesome that I was like, yeah, okay, that's, that's going in the podcast. That's perfect. And it kind of just came about as I started looking into it. I was like, you know what we could do, we may not be able to do a thematic of badass women in a certain area of pioneering exploration, but we can do some badass women firsts. There's lots of things that women did as firsts. And that's what we're going to be doing tonight. Um, you guys are going to dig these stories we got tonight. I'm really pretty dang positive about that. Um, tonight's stories are going to kind of be the tale of two social situations here we have on this planet in humanity. One is we're going to be looking at some of the best traits in humankind. Like, gosh, 
pure physical stamina and endurance, um, bravery, courage, um, a giant middle finger to the established norms when the established norms are wrong. But then on the other hand, for these stories to carry all the power and weight that they truly carry, we have to look at some of the worst traits in humanity. Um, and the one tonight specifically, as you can probably imagine, because this is about badass women, is misogyny. You're going to hear a lot about jackass men, unfortunately. Speaking as a man on behalf of my gender, you know, it's painful to listen to. But it's also a little bit of a lesson in how far we actually have came. I know we're not there yet. Don't anyone think that I'm saying we're there yet to true equality. But we've come so, so far from where we used to be. Um, so in a way, it's a story of good and bad. All of our stories are stories of good and bad tonight. Um, something I have kind of noticed, um, and doing this podcast has helped me understand it better about myself. Cause I've, I've mentioned so many times, I don't know how to really interweave it all together, but somehow my love of the outdoors is intertwined with the traumas that I've faced in my life and the healing from them and getting past it. Somehow the two go hand in hand. Trying to weave it together into a narrative has been tough. Um, and doing 37 episodes of this show, we have evolved. And I think it's kind of silently, slowly in the background of my mind started to kind of expose itself as to how the two make sense together. And tonight's episode kind of dawned on me like, as you read through any stories of things that awesome, badass women have done out there in the world over time, ever, it always really comes down to one thing that really seeded it to send them out. And it was the wilderness was a place of peace as opposed to their personal lives that were very, very often traumatic or in one way or another, very, very exclusive of them. And I found over the years of researching and listening to other podcasts about wilderness things like there are so many groups out there in the world that are starting to recognize, including the psychological world, the benefits of going out in nature. Like there are therapists now who literally prescribe nature therapy for some of their patients because it's just finally being recognized how healing wilderness is and how comforting it is. And I think that maybe at the seed of that, this is just a hypothesis, a theory, maybe at the seed of that is the fact that the wilderness does not discriminate. And that's what it started to help me realize about myself. Like when I was very young, I went through a lot of crap. I've told you all that before. I did not have a great childhood. It's one that I care not to remember most of the time. But I was like, the only 12 year old I knew in 1992 that had a go bag. Like I'm going to tell you all a little bit of personal stuff here and it's kind of embarrassing, but you know what? Maybe someone needs to hear it. I was a 12 year old that had a go bag. Y'all, this was before even Y2K. Okay. Like we, we weren't into like, I mean, now it's, it's common parlance, the doomsday preppers, right? We got all these stupid TV shows and everyone thinks the country's literally about to descend into civil war. And it's been going on. God, I've been watching this happen since like 2008. Um, and it's not going to happen. Not that way. But I was like a prepper before there were preppers and I didn't even know what I was doing and I didn't know why. And now as I look back on it and with all of these episodes under my belt, 
some of this, something is starting to come to the surface. And I think it's the, the idea that what I may be recognized as a 12 and 13 year old going out with my friends and their dads into the hunting woods, into the deer camp, out to fish on fish camps and what it was about nature that truly spoke to me was nature didn't discriminate against me. Like I was a poor, poor kid growing up in a little town that I mean, to my mind and my recollection did not care for me. I was humiliated all the time for the holes in my sweatpants. And like, I mean, growing up poor sucks. Anyone who's ever grown up really poor and been humiliated over and over and over again at school Like, y'all, let's not even get started on school. It is a gross little ecosystem. It's bad. Um, But I hated my childhood. I absolutely hated it. And somehow what I saw in nature was a place that gave me back the respect that I gave it. I could go out there and yes, nature could kill me. But it most likely wouldn't if I treated it with the proper respect. And I did my research and I learned and I knew I had control. When I went into the wilderness, you can never take away the variable of the sucker punch. You can never take away the variable of some catalytic event that could take you out. That's just a part of our lives. But in nature, nature does not maliciously want to take you out. In my childhood, in the world I grew up in, in the world that still exists today for so many people, the world is malicious. Everybody wants your money. Everybody wants whatever you have. Everybody wants to put you down to build themselves up. Like we are psychologically not a healthy first world society. The Western world is not psychologically healthy. Like change my mind. We are not by any means. All you got to do is look at a magazine cover, a newspaper, a TV show, and you'll see that. Nature does not discriminate. It doesn't maliciously want to humiliate me. It doesn't maliciously want to hurt you. It doesn't want to kill you. It just exists. It does what it does. Okay. And as such, we can observe it doing what it does. We can listen to others experiences of how it went and we can take our own lives into our own hands. And when we go there, we are in a sense, the masters of our own fate. You've taken out almost all of the variables. You're not going to meet a person who's like actually trying to drain your bank account, who's trying to gain your trust to to get to your assets. You're not going to meet a person who actually just wants to be a bully because they've got their own issues and they need to feel bigger and stronger and better than someone else. Nature's not going to do that, do that to you. Nature's just going to be nature. And I think that's why it resonated with me at a young age. Then I didn't even know it is I had control there where I didn't have control anywhere else and ended up being like the freaking 12, 13 year old freaking survivalist trying to learn about bushcraft pre-internet, learn about, you know, wilderness survival before the internet was even something that was readily available to us, even before Y2K. Um, and it has in a way given me a practicality to my life. I'm always ready for just about anything. I'm usually not blindsided, but that's neither here nor there. I do, and I digress. I digress. Um, but why did it come up tonight is because I think that to so many of these women and, and probably people of other cultures and other ethnicities would find themselves out of place and they are not within the social norms of where they're at. I think that's why they find the wilderness so appealing because the wilderness does not discriminate against us. It does not have malicious intent towards us. And 
in that it really comes back around to the whole goal of what I intended with this podcast from the beginning, which was to show people you can overcome trauma through finding yourself out there in the wilderness, that there can be a much better life than what you left behind or what spit you out, depending on your your scenario and your personal situation. There can still be a huge open world of adventure and exploration and fun and good things out there. You can still go out there and live on the other side of anything that you've really faced in your life. Like that's kind of where it all comes back around full circle for me and how it suddenly in my mind kind of makes sense why and how I'm trying to interweave these two narratives of overcoming trauma and outdoor adventure is because to adventure outdoors is a healing experience and is to overcome trauma. I truly believe that. And the last story that we are going to tell tonight is a dead ringer to demonstrate exactly that, exactly what I'm talking about. Um, But we will get to that. That is not yet on our agenda. We've got a couple of other stories to tell first, and I do believe it's about time to get on to those stories. Now we are going to begin the reading portion, the narrative portion. So y'all bear with me. This story is great. The stories get, this is a nice light one. This, This is a great story. In 2016, Australian Jade Hamister was only 14 years old. That year, she began an attempt on what's known as the polar hat trick. The polar hat trick is cross-country skiing across the polar ice cap to the North Pole, across the world's second largest ice cap in Greenland, and then across the Antarctic ice cap to the South Pole. To start her attempt, in April 2016, Hemeister traveled 150 kilometers from 88 degrees over the drifting polar sea ice to arrive at the North Pole to become the youngest person, either male or female, in history to ski to the North Pole from anywhere outside of 89 degrees. Each day, Hamister skied with her 110-pound sled for 8 to 10 hours, navigating around open leads of water or climbing over pressure ridges in the ice. Temperatures were as low as negative 40 degrees Celsius, and Hamister faced other risks such as falling through thin ice into the freezing Arctic waters and polar bears. Polar bears. Let me emphasize polar bears. Have you ever seen a polar bear light up a seal? Do yourself a favor. Maybe not. If you don't like to see absolute unadulterated violence, don't look that up. But if you never have, I assure you, it's incredibly violent. And Jade had to brave polar bears on her adventure across the North Pole. She was awarded the Australian Geographic Society's Young Adventurer of the Year um, Award for her 2016 North Pole Expedition, which was captured in the National Geographic documentary On Thin Ice, Jade's Polar Dream. It aired in 170 countries. That sounds all fine and good, right? But what did she overcome, Justin? Well, besides going across the freaking Arctic Circle, there's more. And that's where we're going now. Then, later in 2016, with the very first of those three ice caps crossed, she gave a TEDx talk in Melbourne, Australia, and it was posted to YouTube. Her message, aimed at young women everywhere, was very simple. What if the focus shifted from how we appear to what we can do? In the YouTube comments, Jade was berated by an alarming number of insecure Neanderthals, 
masquerading as grown men. Many told Jade to make me a sandwich. An unfortunately common dig aimed at what misogynistic jackasses consider a woman's place in society to be. Well, this unadulterated display of grown men's insecurities and inferiority compensation did not deter Jade. So she set out to complete the second leg of her attempt of this polar trifecta. On the second expedition, Hemeister completed the 550-kilometer traverse on the Greenland ice caps, departing from a town with a name that I cannot pronounce, nor will I try, on the west coast and finishing at another town with a name that I cannot pronounce, on the East Coast, on July 4th or June 4th, 2017, she covered approximately 25 kilometers a day and completed the expedition in 27 days, making her the youngest woman in history to cross the Greenland ice caps. She was hit early in the trip by a blizzard, but due to the warm weather, she was pelted with rain instead of snow, which is bad, okay, and forced her to shorten her daily travel to give her the opportunity to dry out every day in her tent. We've talked at length before. Y'all know what it's like, how hypothermia is, how bad it is, and water exasperates that, like, exponentially. So, that just made her trip all the longer and all the harder, but she got it done. So, moving forward... Now, with two legs of absolute badassery down and the chauvinistic squeals of a dying patriarchal society still ringing in her ears. Y'all had fun writing this one, if you can't tell. Only the South Pole remained. Hammeister embarked on the final leg of her polar quest at the end of 2017. Um, in November, specifically. Hammeister covered over 600 kilometers from the Ross Ice Shelf at the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole, she began her journey at sea level. Okay, that's zero feet. The elevation of the South Pole, 9,300 feet. So she skied uphill 600 kilometers the whole damn way. All while pulling a 220-pound sled. She completed this trek in 37 days and reached the South Pole on the 10th of January, 2018. Hamister claimed a handful of titles, including the youngest person in history and the first Australian woman to ski from the coast to the South Pole. And thus, Jade Hamister completed the polar hat trick. And then a thought occurred to her. Realizing that she was only a half a mile from her camp, she decided... To make a sandwich. Yes, my dear wayward souls, this young lady who had just skied 600 kilometers uphill for 37 straight days decided to add just one more mile to her trip log so that she could make a ham sandwich. But not because she was hungry. For the uncultured swine inhabiting the cesspit known as the comments section of a YouTube video. She posed for a picture, holding that sandwich while surrounded by the multinational ring of flags that encompass the South Pole, and then dropped it on the social meds with these words. I made you a sandwich. Now ski 37 days and 600 kilometers to the South Pole, and you can eat it. That, like, makes me giddy. 
That like makes me giddy. I love that so much. That has got to be one of the single most legendary mic drop moments in the history of womankind, y'all. She was 14 and she did all those things that 99.99% of the rest of us will never and could never, could never do, okay? A very small number of people are ever going to complete that trifecta. She's 14 years old. She did it unaided. Now, she had a party with her, of course. You know, you have to have that, okay? Like, nobody makes it to the South Pole skiing by themselves completely without a group of people with them. No one does that. No one, male or female. She did it unaided. She carried her own sled. She pulled her own sled, and she made it to the South Pole. And then she dropped a big, fat mic on the heads of all those misogynistic jackasses out there in the world. It blows my mind. It blows my mind, y'all. I don't understand that those men, that they still exist on this planet. My brain wants to believe they don't, and that was just trolls being trolls, but I know better because... Well, I work and live in the real world. And yeah, it does still exist. It still boggles my mind. But I think that we all learn when we see moments like what Jade Hamister did here. I think we all learn an important lesson that we should all take to heart. And that is a badass trumps a jackass every damn time. Somebody wants to hate on you. If you got trolls in your world, man, you eat that for breakfast. You make that your fuel and you go and do the thing. You go and do the thing. And then you troll them right back. It's beautiful. This is beautiful. Jade, Jade Hamister. You will never listen to this podcast. I'm just almost certain of that. But if by some off chance... You ever hear my words, I want you to know something. You are absolutely, not that a billion people haven't already told you this, because they have, I've seen it, and you deserve every single word of every accolade you've gotten. But just from my heart to yours, you are absolutely the kind of role model young women in this world need, and grown women for that matter, and grown men for that matter, all of us. You are the kind of role model we all need. You exhibited so many amazing traits just to accomplish what you did. And I feel like your mic drop moment, it was perfect. I don't think it was distasteful. I don't think it was out of line. I think it was perfect because sometimes, sometimes the world needs to be reminded that the trolls do still exist, that they are still out there. And we have to continue to do these things and share these stories as a society to continue to push past it. I hope that my daughter, no matter what she does on this planet in her life, I don't care if she becomes an astrophysicist. I don't care if she becomes a pioneering woman adventurer like you. I don't care if she becomes a ballerina archaeologist because that's what she's going to be currently. And in her words, because daddy You can't just do one thing your whole life, which I totally agree. And I'm here for you, girl. You do that. But no matter what she does, I hope she does it with the spirit that you embody and you displayed to the world 
with this polar trifecta and your mic drop. Jade, it took me 37 years to gain access to that giant middle finger that exists inside of all of us to anyone who would mistreat us or try to oppress us or try to hurt us. You did it at 14 years old. You are truly a role model. You have every ounce of respect that I have to give. And yeah, yeah, I don't know what else to say. That's it. That's it. Um, y'all, I just hope that someday I can be that kind of a badass in anything. I just like, I hope that I ever even get the chance like that is a hard act to follow. Um, but we need to keep moving with tonight's episode. So we need to get on to our other stories for the night. But first we've run on 30 minutes now. We need to get to a word from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to tell two more stories and I guarantee you, you're going to enjoy them every bit as thoroughly as the story of Jade Hammeister. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece, and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sticking around for that short sponsor break. Let's get on to the last two stories we have for tonight. We should fill up the last half hour of tonight's episode with both of them. Um, the first one we're going to talk about is the all woman, the very first all woman ascent of Devil's Tower in Wyoming in the Badlands. Um, first though, let's talk about Devil's Tower. Let me give you guys, I want to give you guys the lay of the land here, kind of get an idea of what it's like up there in case you've never been to South Dakota, um, Wyoming up there in the Badlands region of the United States. It's pretty brutal stuff. Um, Devil's Tower itself, also known as Bear Lodge Butte, is a butte compromised of igneous rock in the Bear Lodge Ranger District of the Black Hills near Hewlett and Sundance in Crook County, northeastern Wyoming, above the Belfush River. It rises 1,267 feet above the Belfush River, standing 867 feet from summit to base. The summit is 5,112 feet above sea level. Devil's Tower was the first United States national monument established on September 24, 1906 by President Theodore Roosevelt. The monument's boundary encloses an area of 1,347 acres. It is thought to be an igneous intrusion. Um, the Badlands themselves are absolutely gorgeous. They are on my bucket list, y'all. Big time on my bucket list. I want to go dig in to the Badlands in so many ways. Um, a whole lot like the Painted Desert. Many people have seen the Painted Desert because it's super easy to access. And it's right off of Interstate 40, a major thoroughfare for people traveling anywhere across country. If you've seen the Painted Desert, there are many places that have similar attributes to um, the Badlands. But the Badlands also have some super, super dramatic um landforms um and rock formations and geology and ecology it's it's 
it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And it's on my bucket list. Um, the Badlands were dubbed by the Lakota people as Makosika or the Badlands long ago because of the rocky terrain, the absolute lack of water and the extreme temperatures that made it difficult to traverse and the chaotic, crazy winds that have shaped all of these amazing rock formations. Like y'all, the weather there is brutal and crazy. So climbing anywhere in the Badlands is already a situation. It's already a whole dang thing into itself. The climbing of Devil's Tower itself, this is just one more short little excerpt and we'll get on to the story. Hundreds of parallel cracks divide Devil's Tower into large hexagonal columns. These features make it one of the finest traditional crack climbing areas in North America. The cracks vary in length and width. Some are wide enough to fit your entire body, Others barely have room for your fingers. The longest crack extends nearly 400 feet upwards. The tef- technical difficulty ratings range from 5.7 to 5.13. Just to give you guys an idea, because I had no idea, I'm not a rock climber. Not really my thing. Um, the only thing I know about being on the face of anything is rappelling down it. I don't think I'll ever be ascending up it. I'm going to need a couple of shoulder surgeries, I think, before I could ever think about climbing something and trusting my shoulders to support me. Um, But just to give you guys an idea, this is 5.7 to 5.13 generally. So 5.7 to like 5.10 is considered mid-range stuff for somewhat seasoned people who have their feet under them. It's not for beginners. So it starts out at you need to know what you're doing. But the difficulty ranges all the way up to 513, correct? 511 to 515 is for straight up badasses. So 513 is pretty rough, and that's what you're going to face when you go up Devil's Tower. Many modern climbers consider the oldest routes, the Durants and the Weissner, harder than their original ratings. The majority of routes at the tower not bolt protected and require the appropriate selection of camming devices or other temporary anchors. The few bolted face climbs that exist were established in the 1980s and the 1990s and the condition of some bolts reflect that era. So that is the environment and that is the technical aspects of climbing the tower. It's a tough climb in a super tough environment to just break that down so that I can understand it. So, we are going to read a narrative tonight about the first all-female ascent of Devil's Tower. And I'm going to read this as written by someone else. As written by the person who did it, Jan Kahn. And this narrative is so well written that it wouldn't be right for me to even try to mess with it at all. It is perfect as it stands, and I'm going to present it to you as such. So, the first all-female ascent of Devil's Tower, and this is parked at nps.gov, the National Park Service's website, but this is the original article written by Jan Cohen. Formerly from Washington, D.C., Jan Cohen, with her husband Herb, spent a large number of years in the West. A large part of that time was in the neighborhood of the Black Hills of South Dakota, where the two of them climbed often. They also became involved in the exploration of the Jewel Cave National Monument. She has many fine climbs to her credit, and of this one, the first all-female ascent of Devil's Tower, Miss Khan can justly be proud. This article first appeared in the Appalachia Magazine of December 15, 1952. Its title, Manless Ascent of Devil's Tower, 
The byline is, of course, by Jan Kahn. It all started four years ago when Herb and I were coming triumphantly into camp after climbing Devil's Tower. It had been an excellent climb on good firm rock, and we had that tired, satisfied feeling one always has after such a climb. I was feeling particularly smug because I was the first woman to climb the tower without the aid of the old ladder, which had long been out of use. My self-satisfaction was short-lived. Curious tourists had gathered around us, asking us questions and staring at our ropes and our hardware. And after looking at me, with what I assumed were awe and respect, a brawny Minnesotan turned to Herb and said, So how does it work? Do you, like, climb up to a ledge somewhere and then haul her up? Herb's careful explanation was lost to me as I fumed inwardly at the stupidity of the human race and the quirk of fate which made me look like a pudgy schoolgirl instead of a tall, strapping Amazon. Y'all, I'm, I love Jane Cohen. I love this woman. At that moment, I took a solemn vow that someday I would climb Devil's Tower with someone who couldn't possibly haul me up, someone who couldn't get all of the credit for my straining muscles, if I could find another girl. Girl rock climbers who lead and are willing to assume equal responsibility for an ascent are fairly rare, but the climbing group in Washington, D.C., has turned out more than its fair share. They have developed female climbers who don't seem to have heard that men are physically superior to women. They not only do their share of backpacking in the high mountains, but they hold their own on the severe practice climbs along the Potomac River. I had seen Jane Showaker do some superb practice climbing on the Potomac Cliffs, and I knew she had spent several seasons in the mountains of western Canada. Pim and Ken Karcher, who had been in the high mountains with her, found her a camera friend and reported that her greatest fault was her insistence that if you stand out to the right of that foothold and lean back just a little more, it will make a better picture. Also, they said, she consumed more food than anyone they knew. Well, I have my own peculiarities, and I could certainly put up with hers if she could stand mine. Herb had long teased me about my dependence on a Clark bar for quick energy, sometimes even in the middle of a pitch. By our standards, a two-Clark bar climb is a real humdinger. Also, the writing of the 1950s, I love it. I get scared sometimes, not when I am leading, but only when I have a secure upper belay. Also, I am allergic to carrying a pack. In spite of all these things, Jane and I decided we would give Devil's Tower a try. So at 4.30 a.m. on July 16, 1952, the two of us crept out of the Devil's Tower campground carrying rope, hardware, a camera, and food enough, including hard bar- Clark bars, for six people. As I was panting up the talus and wondering why the active life I lead doesn't make me lose weight, Jane was bobbing along behind me, munching on a plum. I was elected to lead the first pitch because it required a long reach, And being one and three quarters inch over five feet, I was three quarters of an inch taller than Jane. The pitch required balance and the use of small holds. Jane coming up under our tremendous pack was not happy. Therefore, we decided to haul it up in the next pitch, the Durant's crack. I led again, taking well over half an hour on the 80-foot pitch. I didn't expect to lead the whole distance. For the last 20 feet, I was just looking for a pitten crack so I could climb down with an upper belay and let Jane lead the rest. We had so much trouble hauling up the pack that we ate some of the lunch, just to lighten the load, of course, before going on. Thus fortified, Jane took the lead. 
She jammed into a narrow chimney above, where I could hear her pounding in a pitten. It didn't sound to me as if it were in far, and I heard Jane remark as she snapped her rope through it, It might not hold some six-foot muscle man, but it's good enough for us. Jane only weighs 109 pounds. As I shouldered the pack to follow Jane, there was a grim determination on my face. Carrying a pack up an inhale-exhale, jammed chimney, is not my idea of a pleasant way to spend a hot summer day. Once jammed into the chimney with the pack, I seemed utterly unable to move. But with enough heaving, grunting, and pushing, I slowly inched my way upward. Jane's face looked concerned as my head finally emerged from the crack. She voiced her concern. Golly, I hope the oranges didn't get squashed. (laughs) The next pitch was a high angle inside corner with an overhanging bulge at the top. Pittens had been left in this pitch. Someone had placed them at arm's reach to protect each tricky spot. Jane, as leader, discovered that in each case she had to take the difficult step before she was high enough to reach the pitten which was to have protected it. Being short does have its disadvantages. Nevertheless, she reached the overhang in short order and pulled over to the belay ledge. It is almost impossible to climb Devil's Tower without gathering a large audience of inquisitive tourists. We could see them all grouped below and could catch occasional remarks such as, Does someone pay them to do that? And then the emphatic answer, I don't know, but you couldn't pay me to do it. Jane and I grinned at each other. It seemed to be impossible for people who haven't tried it to understand just why climbing rocks is such fun. Jane's last lead had brought us up to the start of the traverse to the large bushy ledge where the serious climbing is over. Soon we were following the crude trail made by 75 or so people who have climbed Devil's Tower since 1937 when Weissner made the first ascent of the rock not using the old ladder. Beyond the ledge, 200 feet of easy scrambling brought us to the large, rounded summit and the flying ants. One would think that with all of Wyoming to choose from, that swarm of ants would find a spot more to their liking than the top of Devil's Tower. But there they stay to pester any stray climbers who are foolish enough to invade their personal domain. After gleefully signing the register as the first manless ascent, Jane and I retreated to the edge of the summit for a bite of something besides flying ants. We had spent six hours on the ascent, and we used two more hours on the summit exploring, taking pictures, and eating most of the food we had brought. By the time we started down, it was really hot, and we found ourselves collapsing into every piece of shade on that sunny face. We had not brought a rappel rope, so we had to just climb down to the top of the Durant's crack. Here we had left an extra climbing rope, and by joining the two ropes we managed to repel. At the base there was so much picture taking and staring, and I was feeling wonderful. No one could possibly think that Jane had pulled me up, or vice versa. I looked too, <laughs> I looked too chubby to haul anyone. Even Jane, and she looked so small that it was hard to picture her doing anything much more strenuous than playing shuffleboard. But of course, the blow still had to fall. As a couple turned to leave the crowd that had gathered around us, I heard the man remark, That climb must not be that hard if they can do it. (sighs) Y'all, y'all, I I don't know what else to say. I don't know what to say to that except that Jan Kahn and her friend Jane made the first manless ascent of Devil's Tower, and I can't even imagine I can't even imagine doing it myself. And there's a very small number of people on this planet that do or will. But they deserve to be recognized for what they did at a time in the 1950s, y'all. 
in the 1950s, like, we were still pretty misogynistic. I mean, clearly we still are today, judging by our previous story about Jade Hamister. But, like, we've come a long way to the current day from where we were in the 1950s. Anyone that's a student of history knows what the 50s were like. I mean, gosh, especially when it came to any kind of equal rights. Um, or equal respect, for that matter. Um, that is a great story. I love that story. I love how she wrote it. I love everything about it so much. That's why I decided to bring it to you guys. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that story. Um, and that was a fun story. Our first two stories were a little bit more lighthearted. They were a lot more um, on the side of a little bit more of a playful nature on the female side to deal with the um, kind of flippant misogyny that exists out there in the world. The last one is a little bit heavier. Saved it for the end because I think this is one of the most single most incredible feats ever. And like I said earlier, this is the story that touches back on really what drove me to start this project. What drives me inside that just, again, I don't really know how to explain it. But what I feel inside is we just need to share our stories. We need to share everyone's stories. We all need to get on the same page and be a little bit more understanding of each other and and try to show people that like, you do not have to succumb to the negative events that impact your life, to traumas that happen. I don't want to keep belaboring that thought because I know it starts to sound preachy. I hate listening to myself say it over and over again. But that's what this is all about for me is maybe giving people some hope. There's still something left to live for, and that is simply yourself. After trauma, after bad experiences, there's still something left to live for if for no other reason than just for yourself because you have that much value. Just because you were born onto this planet, you have that much value. You deserve to have an attempt at a happy life. I'm not saying everyone deserves a happy life. The world is what it is. You know, we are all um, subject to chance. Like, life is what it is, but we all deserve a chance. We all deserve a chance. And if you're still breathing, if you're still kicking... Get out there and live your life. You deserve to do that. And the story we're about to tell, this this woman that we're about to talk about is the OG of overcoming trauma through wilderness therapy. And she did a really, really badass thing. So, so far, badass women first of the night. 14-year-old Jade Hemmeister doing the polar trifecta, the youngest woman ever to go across the Arctic Circle, across the Antarctic Circle. Um, Jane Con and J um, Jane, let me get Jane's last name again. I don't want to get that wrong. Showaker, Jane Showaker, first woman ascent, first all-woman ascent of the Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Now, we are going to talk about the first woman through hike of the Appalachian Trail. We are going to talk about Emma Rowena Gatewood, also known as Grandma Gatewood. She's famous enough in some circles that some of you guys may have heard of her. Um, and if you have, you know, just hang with us because we're telling this story one way or another because anyone that hasn't heard this story, you need to hear it. This story is quite, um, this story should be inspiring. If nothing else in this world is inspiring, this one should be because this woman did a whole damn thing and she is the quintessential female badass. So Grandma Gatewood, we're going to give a little bit of her background because it's very important to set up her background to illustrate the point that I'm making tonight about overcoming things in life through your um, exposure to the great outdoors and finding something else to live for out there sometimes. Emma Rowena Gatewood, known as Grandma Gatewood, born on October 25th, 1887 
and lived until June 4, 1973, was an American ultralight hiking pioneer. After a difficult time as a farm wife, a mother of 11 children, and a victim of domestic violence, she became famous as the first solo female thru-hiker of the 2,168-mile Appalachian Trail. In 1955, at the age of 67. Okay? Okay. We're going to go on. She subsequently became the first person, either male or female, to hike the Appalachian Trail three times after completing a second thru-hike two years later, followed by a section hike in 1964. In the meantime, like, you know, just offhand in her spare time in between doing those three thru-hikes of the Appalachian Trail, she hiked 2,000 miles of the Oregon Trail in 1959. So, 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 badass. All right, let's get to the story. May 5th, 1907, at the age of 19, she married 27-year-old Perry Clayton Gatewood, a college-educated primary school teacher and later tobacco farmer with whom she had 11 children. Y'all, this woman birthed 11 children. Almost immediately, her husband set her to work, burning tobacco beds, building fences, mixing cement, in addition to her expected housework duties. He was a rough taskmaster. Although PC was recognized in the community as a man of above average intellect, he had a mean streak, and within months of the wedding, he started beating his wife, a vicious pattern that continued for the duration of their marriage. In 1924, he was convicted of manslaughter after killing a man during an argument. He was ordered to pay restitution to the widow of the victim, but his prison sentence was suspended because he had nine children and a farm to take care of. Emma recalled being beaten nearly to death on several occasions. When her husband became violent, she would often run into the woods where she found peace and solitude. In 1939, after yet another violent fight, PC arranged to have his wife arrested and jailed. Seeing her with broken teeth and a cracked rib, the town mayor took her in and found her a job. She filed for divorce in September of 1940, and in February of 1941, she testified against her husband in a hearing that resulted in the divorce being granted, giving her custody of all three children that still lived at home, and with alimony to be paid to her by PC. The justice system actually worked in that scenario. This was at a time when divorce was difficult and after her husband had repeatedly threatened to have her committed to an insane asylum as a means of maintaining control over her. Six years later, she began working at various jobs, renovating her house, and writing poetry. By 1951, all of her children were grown. So let's talk about her hiking career. What did Grandma Gatewood do? In the 1950s, while early 1950s, while reading a discarded copy of the August 1949 edition of National Geographic, Gatewood found an article about the Appalachian Trail. Here forward, we're going to call it the AT, because I'm already stumbling over words. The description and photographs captivated her and made it sound like something she could do. All that was needed was normal good health, quote-unquote, and no special skill or training. She set out in July 1954, at the age of 66, to hike south from Mount Catadin in Maine. And after a few days, she got lost, broke her glasses, and ran out of food. The rangers who found her convinced her to return home, but she decided not to tell anyone about her failure. And this is also, you know, this is also a lesson in perseverance, y'all. This is a lesson in never taking no for an answer. If you want something bad enough, go get it. So, she 
the following year, the age of 67, told her grown children that she was going to go for a walk. They did not ask where or for how long, as they knew that she was resilient and would take care of herself. This time, she started earlier in the year and walked north from Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia, beginning on May 3, 1955, and ending 146 days later on September 25th at Mount Catadon. At the top of Baxter Peak, she signed the register, sang the first verse of the song, America the Beautiful, and spoke out loud, I did it, I said I'd do it, and I've done it. At the age of 67, she through-hiked the Appalachian Trail, the AT, over 2,000 miles, 146 days. This woman is a badass. Because the National Geographic magazine article had given her the impression of easy walks and clean cabins at the end of each day's expedition, she took little in the way of outdoor gear. Y'all get this. Get this. Listen to this. No tent, no sleeping bag, just a shower curtain to keep the rain off. She wore canvas Keds shoes on her misshapen feet and carried a small notebook, some clothes and food in a homemade denim bag slung over one of her shoulders. When she couldn't find shelter, she slept on piles of leaves. On cold nights, she heated large flat stones to use as warm beds. When she ran out of food, she ate berries and other wild edible forest plants that she recognized. Y'all, not only was she a through hiker, like she was a OG survivalist. She's like that right there, that right there. Bushcraft. That's bushcraft to the core. I mean, God, wild edibles. Like this is this is and you know what? It also speaks to a different time in American history. When to live anywhere meant you knew the land. You knew the plants. You knew what was going on in the world around you because your survival depended on it. Period. Um, God, that's that's but it's still it's still extreme. It's still extreme. God, it's still extreme, y'all. Um, anyway, during her first through hike of the Appalachian Trail, nigh on in June, local newspapers began to pick up her story. So she still had till what, September, right, before she finished? Let's see. Yep, September 25th. So towards the end of June, local newspapers started picking up on her story. Beginning with the Virginian in an article in the Roanoke Times, or no, beginning in Virginia with an article in the Roanoke Times, then the Associated Press did a national profile of her while she was in Maryland, leading to an article in Sports Illustrated when she reached Connecticut. The publicity made her a celebrity even before the hike was over. She was often recognized and received, quote, trail magic, end quote, assistance from strangers in parentheticals, in the form of friends, food, and places to sleep. After the hike, Sports Illustrated ran a follow-up article describing her experiences on the trail. She was quoted as saying that, based on the National Geographic article's rosy description, she thought it would be a nice lark. It wasn't, quote unquote. She continued, this is no trail. This is a nightmare. For some full reason, they always lead you right up over the biggest rock to the top of the biggest mountain they can find. <laughs> Newspapers across the United States, including the Baltimore Sun, carried articles about the, quote, jovial little grandmother who conquered the A.T. In addition, she was invited as a featured guest on the news and talk television programs of the Today Show with Dave Garraway and won $200 on the televised quiz show, Welcome Travelers. In June 1956, U.S. Representative Thomas A. Jenkins of Ohio entered a description of Gatewood's accomplishments and subsequent publicity into the congressional record. 
Gatewood again through-hiked the AT Trail in 1957. She reported that the trail was in better condition that year due to efforts by local hiking clubs to clean up and mark parts of it. She was invited to speak to students at various civics groups about her experiences. In 1958, she climbed six mountains in the Adirondacks in New York State. In 1959, at the age of 71... She was inspired by publicity about the Oregon Centennial Exposition to walk 2,000 miles or 3,200 kilometers for everyone outside of the United States and the Philippines of the Oregon Trail by herself, following the footsteps of the pioneer women who had walked the route behind the covered wagons 100 years earlier. Trip took her three months from Independence, Missouri to Portland, Oregon, averaging 22 miles a day. Her arrival in Portland was celebrated as Grandma Gatewood Day. Among her many gifts and accolades were trips to Hollywood for guest appearance on TV shows like Arc Linkletter's House Party and You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. Gatewood completed her third hike of the AT, this time in sections in 1964 at the age of 76 making her the first person to complete the trail three times. She was also credited with being the oldest female thru-hiker by the Appalachian Trail Conference. Y'all, Grandma Gatewood. So many firsts. And, like, so much inspiration to draw from. Like, such a great example. That's a great role model, too. Like, she got out. Of a violently abusive, y'all, broken teeth and broken ribs. Like, I'm no stranger to what spousal abuse looks like. Broken teeth and broken ribs is on the extreme end of the violent spectrum. That is extreme. Um, And for her to survive that, overcome that, step out from that... And not be beaten into submission. Y'all, there's a thing. When women are abused, battered women, they have... Okay, look, I don't want to get too far deep into anything, but I know a little bit about it. And you can break someone's spirit. Many, many battered women end up with a broken spirit, and they kind of just give up on the rest of everything. I've watched it myself, and it sucks. Grandma Gatewood did not. And I hope any of you out there any of you have ever suffered from spousal abuse like don't put up with it get help to get away from it and just look to someone like grandma gaywood like look at what she did she embodies the spirit of what i wanted to do with this project like god she's my spirit animal there still can be great life beyond trauma no matter what your trauma is there can still be great life beyond it. This woman went on. I'm not going to read all the rest of the crap she did because she did a ton of it. She traveled all over the country after this through all of the 50 states and like three Canadian provinces. She did everything. She also showed you it's never too old, y'all. She at 67 when she did a 2000 mile through hike of the Appalachian Trail with nothing but a shower curtain and kids. Y'all, y'all. Like, don't ever say anything's too hard. Go back and read the story of Grandma Gatewood. Nothing's ever too hard. Look what she did. Holy crap. The quintessential, quintessential badass. Y'all, I don't know where to go from there. And I don't want to sit here and keep belaboring this point. But she was an amazing woman. She was a strong woman. And she embodies the spirit of 
every strong woman out there like Jade Hamister, like Jan Kahn, like all of these people and so many more, the women we talked about back in the Klondike Gold Rush episode, they all embody a spirit of a defiance against oppression and control, but also to prove their haters wrong, to go out and do what it's been said that they cannot do. Y'all, they are true, good role models. So much more, so much more than what we consider to be, say, a female role model for young females today, which apparently includes having to look like you've been stung on the face by a bunch of bees too many times. Today's quote unquote female role models, very, very few of them are actually good role models in any way, shape or form, because it's all about appearance and has nothing to do with the content of your character. These women, these women embody the spirit of what a role model for young women and men and everyone. Y'all, we can all, all of us can take inspiration from this. All of us can respect this. And I don't know what else to say about it because we can talk in circles all night. I can sit here and talk in circles all night. You guys have already learned this about me. I can talk in circles all night about the same thing and make the same point over and over because it's just like a personality glitch I have. Um, So I'm going to wrap it up. We're just going to go ahead and start to wrap it up here. But I just want to say to any of you young ladies or grown women or anyone else out there, never settle, never settle for less than what you want. Never settle for less than how you deserve to be treated. Never ever settle for anything less than being treated like the human being that you are inherently. And that's where we're going to leave it for tonight's episode. Badass women firsts. If you guys enjoy the content, please like, and subscribe, please leave us a rating and a review. Um, if you have stories of your own that you would like to share with us, please, by all means, shoot it to us at mywaywardstory at gmail.com so we can start putting together listener-submitted episodes. Um, For anything else, if you want to find me on Facebook, Twitter, um, God, Instagram is where I'm mostly at. If you want to see photo galleries, anything you want to check out, waywardstories.com. Beyond that, guys, I got nothing else. I don't know what else to say tonight. Like These stories speak to me, speak to my soul. And I hope that they spoke to yours as well. It's mid February. I hope you guys are staying warm out there. I cannot wait to catch you in the next episode, two weeks from now, until then you guys go out there and see if you can't embody a little bit of the spirit that these women embodied and make sure to remember to be good to each other. 